The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's open in prayer. Father, we're grateful for the time that we have this evening to study. Thank you, O Lord, for the warmth and the the, uh, fellowship, for the protection of this building. And Lord, we thank you especially for your word and how powerful it is. And as we study these attributes of God tonight, I pray that you would be with me and with all of us. Lord, open our hearts. Help us to accept what your spirit says about the nature of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you all get a sheet, uh, the communicable attributes of God, three? Um, If not, there's some over on that chair. We're going to be looking at the bold-faced ones tonight. Um, We've talked about the moral attributes uh, of God, His goodness, His love, mercy, His holiness, peace or order, um, righteousness or justice, jealousy. We've talked about those. We're going to finish up the moral attributes with a a look at God's wrath. That's where we were last time. Then we're going to look at the three attributes of purpose. And I'm going to keep my eye on the watch here and we're going to try to divide the time up about 15 minutes each one. Now, it's going to be a little bit hard, I think, uh, the freedom, for example, is a little short, so I may give more time to the will uh, than to the others. But uh, let's begin by looking at God's wrath. Now, as we talk about God's wrath, we're talking about, uh, Grudem says, uh, his hatred for sin. God's wrath is directed toward evil. It is, it is God's passionate response to evil. Now, it's not one of those popular attributes. Most Christians would rather have a good discussion of God's love than His wrath. But the fact of the matter is that God's wrath is actually uh, evidence of His love. He loves what is right. And therefore, He hates what is wrong. Do you see how it's impossible to not have the two together? You can't love what is right. Love is a passion, isn't it? It's an affection. You can't have that and yet not have the other side. And so the wrath of God is most certainly one of His attributes, and it glorifies Him. Now, the problem we have with the wrath of God has to do with with anger, specifically human anger. Why is that a problem for us? Why is it that when you think about our experiences with anger, we have problems ascribing wrath to God? What do you think? Right. In so many cases, our anger is actually a sin, isn't it? We get angry and we sin. And the, the anger itself is a sin. It says in the book of James, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to what? Become angry. But of those three, he only picks up on the third one a comment. And he says, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Wow, human anger is moral filth? Yeah, 99 times out of 100, that's exactly what it is. It deserves to be in the garbage can. So take it out like the garbage. That's what he says. Get rid of anger. Take it out. But that's not what we're talking about when we come to the wrath of God. It's different. Similar, but different. Okay. So God's wrath is His passionate response to evil. Uh, that is evidently and obviously the wrath that will burn forever in hell. That is the anger 
of God, the righteous indignation of God against sin, human sin, and the sin of devils too, because hell was made for the devil and his angels. The Greeks, it says on the sheet, worshipped a God who demonstrated apatheia, from which we get our word what? Apathy, which means to feel nothing. And so that their God is a passionless being. Is that the God of the Bible? Not at all. Our God is a passionate being. And our passions are a reflection of God's passion. So God feels deeply, and that includes wrath. He has a per perfect emotional response to sin, and that is wrath. Now, is there any scriptural support for this? Well, you don't have to work very hard to find it. All you have to do is just start reading the scripture, and you'll see how frequently God displays wrath. It's not, it's not every once in a while. It's a major theme in the Bible. And I, I fear that one of the reasons that, uh, that the church is so weak and ineffective in evangelism is that we don't proclaim the wrath of God against sin to those who need to be warned about it. Jesus did. The people have no fear whatsoever of death. I really believe that in the, in the world there are many, many people who fear death and shouldn't. They're called Christians. And they're just not properly instructed from Scripture. But there are even more people who do not fear death and should. Those are your neighbors who don't know the Lord. They should be terrified to die tonight. And many of them will die tonight. And they will go to hell. And so it is, it is our job as God's evangelist, His, uh, His messengers really in this world, to tell them the truth about the nature of God. You talk to somebody, um, a non-Christian who says, I'm willing to take my chances on Judgment Day. There's no such thing as a chance on Judgment Day. There is justice and only justice on Judgment Day. Either you have the righteousness of Christ and you're wearing it, as John Piper calls it, an asbestos robe that will enable you to survive that fiery day, or you don't and you will be consumed. There's no chances on Judgment Day. Everything is perfectly just that day. And so that is something we must proclaim. We must tell the truth. Is that pleasant to tell the truth? No, it's not. Sin is not a pleasant thing. But we must tell the truth. Now look at the Scriptures on page 2. Our God, it says, is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. How does God express His wrath every day? How does that happen? Well, the wages of sin is death. Go to Durham Regional Hospital. Go to Duke University Hospital. Just walk around the floors and look in and you will see. Now, what I'm saying to you is you cannot tell in many cases when God's wrath is being displayed because it's all, the Scripture also says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. So, if the person's a believer, then that dying scene is a precious thing as they leave this place of suffering and go right into the presence of God. But if they are not Christians, then that death, that dying scene, is a display of the wrath of God. Can you tell perfectly whether they're Christians or non-Christians? No, you can't know for sure. Talking to them certainly helps. And it's a scary thing to talk to somebody who's teetering on the edge of eternity and they are aggressively rejecting the gospel. I've done that many times. It's scary. It really is. It's a scary feeling to be in that room. But God expresses His wrath every day. Romans 1.18. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel because this is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed. So something's uncovered in the gospel. 
Righteousness. A righteousness that is a gift from God is uncovered in the gospel. That's our only hope. There is no other hope. The righteousness from God is revealed. The righteousness that is by faith from first to last or from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. The very next verse, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. The Greek is progressive. It is going on all the time. The wrath of God is constantly, every day, being revealed by God against sin. He does it every day. So every day there is all over the world displays of the wrath of God. Psalm uh, 2 verse 12 says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a prophetic messianic psalm. If you read it, it's quoted in, in Acts 4. It's definitely uh, ascribed to Jesus. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Then He terrifies them in His wrath. So basically, these governments and these opposers are standing against Christ and against His gospel. And what is God's response? He, it's laughter. It's pathetic. They're tiny little grasshoppers. Isaiah 40, he sits in throne above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. And so you have these little grasshopper people shaking their fists saying, we're going to fight you. We're opposed to you. It's just humorous. You're going to do what? I can pull the plug on your existence anytime for in me, you live and move and have your being. You're sawing off the branch you're sitting on. This is the very theme of sinners in the hands of an angry God. That here are these sinners and they're, they're jumping up and down on like a rotted plank over the gaping fires of hell. And they don't understand their danger. The only thing keeping them out of hell for a moment is the, is the, is the power and the will of God. And they're defying Him. He, he laughs at their opposition and then He terrifies them in His wrath. And what does it say at the end? This is a gospel invitation, isn't it? Look at Psalm 2, verse 12 again. Kiss the Son. What does that mean? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Submit to Him. Yield to Him. Don't fight His kingdom. You will lose. Submit to the Son. Kiss the Son. Accept Him. Believe in Him. Yield to His authority, lest He be angry. And whose wrath? Flare up in a moment. Whose wrath? Who's the His? Jesus' wrath. It, does Jesus have wrath? Yeah, we think of God the Father as being the wrathful one and God the Son being the one appeasing Him always. Now, Father, you know, don't do that again. Now, here I am. That's not the case at all. The Father has every bit as much mercy and grace and love toward, this, toward the destitute as Jesus. And Jesus has every bit as much wrath and anger against sin as the Father does. And so, kiss the Son lest He be angry and His wrath flare up in a moment. And you be destroyed, it says, in your way. What does that mean? That you may be destroyed in your way. While you're going about your business. While you're living your life. Isn't that what it says? You may be destroyed in your way. That's scary, folks. You never know if you're shaking somebody's hand, looking in their eye, working with them, this could be their last day on earth. Destroyed in their way. Not a moment to lose. The wrath of God. And it says in John 3, same chapter as John 3, 16, but at the end it says, uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. They're already under the wrath. It's not like the wrath is coming later. They're already under the wrath of God. Isaiah 30, verse 27, it says, See the name of the Lord 
comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. Biblical history is full of powerful displays of the wrath of God. Genesis 7, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the earth to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Now, would you have the heart to do that? Think about it. If you were the one pulling the trigger or whatever, would you have the heart to kill potentially billions of people? The reason I say that is that you realize those people lived a long time back then, hundreds and hundreds of years, right? And we have to assume that the same rules of bio biological reproduction happen. I mean, you're talking huge numbers of people. Could you do it? I don't think I could. I don't think I have the heart for it. God did it. They all died, all of them, except for eight people on an ark. That's the God that we serve. This is the one. And Jesus said, said that that's just a really a dress rehearsal for the second coming of Christ when the whole universe will be destroyed as by fire. And so it's a terrifying thing. Uh, Genesis 19, it says, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of, out of the heavens. Do you see what that says? From the Lord. Why does the Genesis account, why does Moses say that the burning brimstone came from the Lord out of heavens. He doesn't want you to miss what's going on. This wasn't an accident. wasn't a freak of nature. You know, uh, what do those insurance policies call it? An act of God, right? Well, this was a direct act of God. This wasn't a, just an accident. This was direct wrath on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He made them an example to all the wicked cities throughout all history. How many wicked cities are there? Well, how many cities are there? All right. <laughs> And all of them, all of them could have been destroyed by the wrath of God, but he made them a display, didn't he? Now, God withholds himself, doesn't he? He's a patient God, patient God, working all the time. But the fact is that any city could have received that kind of wrath. We're so shocked at 911, aren't we? The whole city could have been destroyed by the wrath of God. Do you realize that? And God would have been just. I, I, I think we just don't know the God of the Bible the way that we should the way we should. As with God's righteousness and justice, the best displays of God's wrath are in the cross and in the end of the world, the torments of hell. How is the wrath of God displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ? How do we see wrath there? Yeah. Yeah, and Jesus knew it, didn't he? I'll tell you what, if you don't understand the wrath of God, you will not understand Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed. Gethsemane is, you can't figure it out. I remember one time I did an ecumenical Good Friday service. It will be the last I will ever do, all right? But I was a pastor up in New England, and I was there with a Methodist and an Episcopal, a Catholic priest, and who knows, a Unitarian Universalist practitioner. I don't know what they what they all believe, but... Um, one of them took Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's studies on death and dying and applied them to Jesus. As he's there bargaining in the garden, I'm saying, you have, oh, I thought, am I going to walk out now or what do I do? I mean, I'm, I was the next program speaker. I had to pray. And I, I got up and prayed. I thank you, Lord, that you were not bargaining in the garden, but you knew exactly what, what was happening. It was the wrath of God. I mean, I said all these things. Boy, I was, whatever. That's another story for another day. But... Um, 
What was the cup that Jesus shrank back from drinking? What was that cup? What was in the cup? There's no question it was the wrath of God. Did Jesus understand that? Well, he did, and I think what happens is he, he had a fuller revelation of it given to him in his humanness as he entered the garden because it says in the book of, of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, that he became astonished. Ekthembeomai means he was overwhelmed with astonishment and he was dropped to his knees. I think what happened is a human body can only handle so much stress. And if he had walked, he knew he was going to die under the wrath of God, but it's one thing to know what's going to happen. You all know you're going to die, but you don't think about it every moment, right? We're all under the death penalty, all of us. But we don't think about it all the time. And, and so in, in like manner, Jesus knew he had come to die under the wrath of God, but at the garden, God pulled back the veil in a fuller sense, and Jesus felt what it was going to be like. And what was the physiological reaction? Yeah. Yeah. He almost, you could say he almost died in the garden. He could have, he could have died right there. And, and I think the point is that Jesus is without question the most courageous man that has ever lived. It wasn't just a death, not even just a crucifixion. That was really pretty common. I mean, the two other guys, he wasn't even crucified alone. It was that he died under the wrath of God and that he willfully chose it. He willfully stood under it. That makes him worthy of your worship, that he was willing to do that for you. You can't understand your salvation apart from the wrath of God. You just can't. You can't understand what Jesus accomplished. And you can't understand evangelism either. You don't understand how, how in what great danger your, your friends are who don't know the Lord. How will they survive? How will they survive that great day? They won't survive. They will not survive. There will be no place to hide. And it's a terrifying thing. There's only one safe place. The ark is the cross of Christ. That's the, pl that's the safe place. There's no other place. No other place. And so we have this in, uh, in Christ, the picture of the wrath of God as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Revelation 14, 9-11 also speaks of uh, the end of the world. And you know the angels are pouring out these bowls of wrath on the, on the earth. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark, his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. John Stott, how can you say that hell is temporary? I don't understand that. I honor this man. He's a great Bible teacher, but I don't know how you can teach that hell is temporary. That is just not true. The smoke... Yeah. Well, it is the gospel. If you don't preach the wrath of God, I don't think you really have a gospel. You're saying save from what? Save from a meaningless life? Oh, that's that's small compared to what we're talking about here. Save from fruitlessness, from a sense of purposelessness, from missing out on the comforts of the gospel. My goodness. Save from the wrath of God. That's what you're saved from. 
You know, and, and my feeling is, listen, I don't know how, there is no gospel apart from that. You've got to communicate clearly. And so here it is. On everything else. I, I just think it's possible to imbibe some bad concept. And I think, you know what it is? I think it's that we just can't see this as worthy of the character of God. How could he make these people suffer forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? It just seems beneath God to do that. Enough is enough, we, we think. But I think we just don't think rightly. What is the angel's attitude? As the angels are pouring out the wrath on earth, what, are, what is their attitude? They're all righteous. I, I think he says it. Look, yeah, look on the page three. Revelation 16, verse 1. And following, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. What is the angel's logic? Because you did it, it's just. You're doing it, so it must be just. There's no question in the angel's mind about that, is there? You are just in doing this because you have so judged. But he goes beyond that. He says, uh, For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given, given them blood to drink as they deserve. And so the angels are worshiping God for his wrath. Now, I guess what we have to do is first of all establish, is this the God of the Bible? Does he do these things? Secondly, can you accept it and trust him and believe that he is righteous in what he does. And third, do you realize that you deserved it too? And does that not prompt you to give him thanks for your salvation? That Jesus stood under it for you? Hasn't your thanks to Christ been too puny, too small for what he did for you? And we should give him thanks. And I guess what I'm saying is I look at this, you know, people say, well, how can we enjoy heaven if, you, if people you knew, perhaps even people you loved, are suffering in hell forever and ever? I just think that Judgment Day will change everything. I really think that at that point you will realize what Jesus meant when he was saying in Matthew 10, if you love anyone more than me, you are not worthy of me. I am your number one loyalty. And we will see it then. When we see him face to face, we'll have no doubts. And anyone who doesn't love him, and we don't love, him, we don't love them either. I don't care who it is. You know, in the, in, in the Old Testament, the uh, book of Moses or the laws of Moses, if even your own spouse came and said to you, let's worship another God, you're to seize them and bring them before the elders and they are to be stoned. You're to have no loyalty above that of God. And so it says, you know, wrath is a communicable attribute. Got to be careful with it because God alone can see the heart. He knows the future. He knows these things. But Psalm 139, um, top of page 3, it says, if only you would slay the wicked, O God... I mean, this is Psalm 139, the one, you know, search me, O God, and know me. It's a beautiful psalm. And at the end, there's this imprecation, this curse against the wicked. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. David wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to be careful because, you know, some of the enemies of the gospel will become Christians. They will. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He converted. So David is in a different category when he writes this. He's filled with the Spirit and he's writing as, I think, as a perfected saint looking out over those who never did accept the gospel. I don't think there's going to be any regrets or else heaven would not be heaven. Folks, could you enjoy heaven if you're constantly lamenting over those that are burning in hell? It's impossible. 
You could never do it. So there must come some detachment, I think, some disengagement, and the love you have for God is more than enough. More than enough. Remember what Jesus said about his mother and brothers and sisters? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Anyone who does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And that's the attitude we have. Our true family are believers, right? And we don't have a loyalty to... And I'll tell you what, that loyalty keeps people out of, out of believing in Christ. I've seen it in Japan. Because their relatives don't believe, they won't believe either. That is such a hindrance to the gospel. Any questions about the wrath of God? Any questions about these verses? There are many other verses we could, we could look at. Any questions? Okay, well, let's move on. Let's talk about the will of God. It's a very, very important topic, isn't it? The will of God. What is the definition? Grudem gives us this. God's will is that attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. He approves and determines to bring about everything needful for his own existence and that also of all of creation. That's the will of God. Wow, is there anything outside of that? Wow, that's, it covers everything. Well, scripture uh, or theologians have broken it down into even more categories for us. God's will in general. God's will is represented as the final cause of all things. Everything is derived from it. You know the children's favorite question when it comes to theology? It's a three-letter three question word. Why? Right? You're going to run right up the ladder of being in existence. Why? 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 What's the final answer? There's, always, there's one final answer in every category. All roads lead to the same thing. Why? What's the answer? Why is the sky blue? Why am I uh, this or that? You know, why? What's the answer? Because God willed it to be that way. That's the final answer. And there's no higher one. There's no one after that. Because he decided to do it that way. That's all. That's the final thing. And so his will is the final, final reason or action for everything there is in the universe. I have to tell you, I had the weirdest thought today. I'm just totally going to editorialize. You know, all things were in the mind of God before they came to be. Do you realize that? I, I don't even know if I should say this. I walked into Durham Regional Hospital today and I saw a car parked there with pink fuzzy dice. I thought, what weird thing. Who invented fuzzy dice? And then it occurred to me, fuzzy dice were in the mind of God first. <laughs> right? Isn't that what we're teaching here? I mean, every, every weird thing you've ever seen, it was in God's mind first. Now, you may say, yes, but he didn't decree fuzzy dice. That's true, all right? He permitted that fuzzy dice be invented at some point. In the 50s, I think it was, or whatever. But uh, the fact is, everything started first in the mind of God, okay? It's a very, very deep concept, fuzzy dice aside, okay? God's will is represented as the final cause of all things. That includes creation and preservation. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, The Lord does whatever pleases Him in the heavens and on the earth in the seas and all their depths. Now, I want to tell you that there's a great deal of overlap between God's will, His freedom, and His omnipotence. They almost be begin to run together. So if we do a good, thorough job on will, we'll get the other two without too much trouble. Okay? They really flow together, those three. So, basically, what do you think when it's saying here in Psalm 135 that our God does, or the Lord does, whatever pleases Him? What does that mean? I'm going to do whatever I please. I mean, that is the attitude. You always say that. And so it's kind of 
Yeah. Well, and I think the reason that, just like like the earlier discussion about wrath, is that that so much of our anger is inappropriate. And so often in the times we say, "Well, I'm going to do as I please," it's inappropriate too. The the reason being that we're not God, and we should be saying, "I will do as God pleases with my time." But He doesn't have anyone other than Himself to answer that, so He must do what He pleases. You see, He must, and He does. And also that points to our God, as we've said earlier, being a happy being. He's not frustrated, you see. Okay? He does what he pleases. These things please him. And so he does them. You see how it works? I think that's wonderful. Jeremiah 18, verse 6 says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. God can do what he pleases with Israel. He can shape and mold Israel as he sees fit. You see? And obviously that concept Paul picks up in, in Romans 9, as we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, also, Revelation 4.11, in the topic of creation preservation, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Everything exists because of the pleasure or the will of God. And by the way... Uh, in the King James and another translation you have, by your pleasure they were created. It's the same thing. There's a tremendous overlap between will and pleasure in God. You see that? What he pleases, he wills. What he wills, he pleases. There's a just direct connection. And so frequently you get a translation on that. Yeah? That's right. What you're talking about now is the freedom of God. And I told you that these three run together. And, and really, if we do a good job on will, we're going to get them all. God has no one answer, answer to. He does not need to answer to us. Yes? I think it's significant, too, that God's will is... Well, he does all His holy will. Mm -hmm. His holy mm-hmm. And what, you know, what Chris is reminding us of, is, as we shared before in the attribute studies, is how these attributes do inform one another. God's wrath is very relate, closely related to his love. His wrath is just. His justice is loving. His, lo his love is merciful. I mean, they all run together. And so his will is holy. It's a pure will. And the things he decides are, are perfect and holy. Good point. Very good point. All right, what about government? How does God, God's will affect government? We'll talk about human government and the things that happen on earth. I like Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. That is a very powerful verse, is it? Is it not? How does God do that? How does He? How did? Go ahead. Does the king? Is the king conscious of the Lord directing his heart like a watercourse? Not at all. Not at all. He's doing what he wants to do. What comes naturally to him. And yet he's doing exactly what God willed for him to do. God directs him. And therefore, we can pray for unbelieving dictators. We can pray that they would have this or that policy. And God's not going to come and say, wait a minute, don't you know that man is an unbelieving dictator? I don't do anything with unbelieving dictators. I only work with believers. That doesn't say that. Saying, I, unbelieving dictators are my specialty. That's what Daniel 4 is all about. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, I can turn them into a beast if I want and then back again. 
I can do anything I want with people. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar learned in Daniel 4? He can do what he wants. Actually, there's some quotes here, aren't there? Yeah, how about that? In government. Daniel is the perfect book for this. I forgot, I'm sorry. Daniel 2, verse 20 and 21, it says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. This is Daniel's prayer after he gets the dream revealed to him. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. Listen, he sets up kings and he deposes them. That's our God. And, you know, he, he does this all the time. All the time. And as Angie said, he doesn't need to answer to anybody. There's no referendum on whether God's doing a good job. Uh, by the way, if we had an internet poll, you know, how many people would think God's doing a good job? Does it really matter what we think? <laughs> if they took the poll in heaven, the angels 100%. Of course he's doing a good job. But he does not ask us for our opinion. Yes, Landis. He had a full schedule of plagues and he wasn't going to stop at course six or fifth, the fifth course or whatever. We're going to get all ten out to the plague on the firstborn. He wanted it. He wanted from then on Israel to know that every firstborn was his, redeemed by blood. All right? Everything had been worked out, hadn't it? All of us are under the death penalty. All of us deserve to die that night when the angel of the Lord moved through. And all of Egypt deserved it too, but only the firstborn died. God is always so restrained, isn't he? Until the end, then there'll be no restraint. No restraint. Read the book of Revelation. You know, this is one of the odd things about the wrath of God. People say it's an Old, Old Testament phenomenon. The greatest displays of wrath are yet to come. Book of Revelation. They're yet to come. And talk yeah. Exactly. And he says, concerning the Assyrian king, I'll put a hook in his nose and lead him back where he came from. What do you mean a hook in his nose? Well, let me tell you something. If you had a hook in your nose, you'd know what it meant. You would follow wherever the one who was holding the rope led. God knows how to take a beast like the Assyrian empire and move it back where he wants them to go. He is in total control. Total control. And uh, Daniel 4.32, the Most High, this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar said. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. He gives them to anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson. He better learn that lesson or it's seven more years eating grass. And that's if God's gracious. He might just send him to hell. He was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years of eating grass is better than burning in hell. And I think there may be a chance that Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven. I don't know. Daniel 4 is some of the greatest praise that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. So I hope he's up there. One of the greatest indications I have is how tenderly Daniel deals with him. I just, I just feel that, you know, I think they're brothers in the Lord. I hope so. And uh, Daniel 4.35, this is again Nebuchadnezzar. All the peoples on the earth, this is, this is Angie's statement, all the peoples on the earth are regarded as nothing. He's not going to ask your advice. Is that hard for you? Does that cause you a problem? Does that hurt your self-esteem? That God isn't going to sit down and say, listen, now I'm struggling with this. I've got a decision on what to do with the Ethiopia uh, or Sudan. We're having some problems with the government. Do you have any advice? I, I'm really struggling here. Do you have any insight? Yeah, go ahead. One of my favorite instances about that is that page one, Genesis one, you could only create without us. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, to me, Genesis is a great example of, you know, people will teach, and I think the power of prayer is incredible, all right? power of God is greater than the power of prayer. How do we know that? Because God did all that creation in the universe 
without anyone praying for it. He just did it. He just did it. Anyway, there's so many things we could say, but this is our God. He is powerful and He, uh, look what it says, He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? There's no account, no accountability. You say God's got no accountability. You're right. He has no, we're accountable to Him. He's not accountable to anybody. Not at all. Nobody can come to Him and say, what, did, what, what, what have you done? And yet we do that, don't we? We bring God to the dock all the time and hold Him accountable for what He's done. And um, remarkably, so often in Scripture, God answers when we bring Him to account. He doesn't have to, but He does. God is also sovereign over uh, election and reprobation, the, you know, the very center of our salvation. Romans 9. You know, when I was preaching through Romans, I came to Romans, the end of Romans 8, and it's a good place to stop for several reasons. One is that there's 16 chapters in Romans, and there's a really natural break uh, after chapter 4 and then chapter 8. Okay? And then 9 to 11, the whole section on the Jews, and then 12 to 16, the, the application. But that's not the only reason I stop. Okay? Romans 9 is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible for us natural people to accept. We have a hard time. I really don't think it's that hard conceptually. You read it, and there it is. But we have a hard time with God's independence, with His freedom. We don't like it that He's flying so high above us and can do whatever He wants with us. It bothers us. It troubles us that he's the potter and we're the clay and he can do what he wants with us. It bothers us. We don't like it. And so, you know, this is, I think it's just important for us to take in Romans 9, read it, saturate it, Scripture. God wanted us to know it. And so this is what he says. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What's the it in that sentence? Salvation. That's what he's talking about. Salvation does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Yes, go ahead, Linus. Very, very difficult to accept that in your standard view of God, that God only wants delightful things for you. Um, you know, on earth, I mean. That God would never make anyone blind. God would never make anyone mute. Well, that's not what that verse says. Yes? Never in the Bible does it say fair. It always mm -hmm. says just. Mm -hmm. In other words, what God is God, just like my mom always like said, life isn't fair. Again. <laughs> so when I put in, parents are for. That's our main message to our kids, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a judgment, I say, but that isn't fair. He got 
I actually have I've talked about this before, how sometimes preparing my children for this lesson, Romans 9 and other things, give double portions of dessert to one of the children and whatever, and they're like, wait a minute, that's not fair. I said, you want fair? Fair equals justice, okay? So you want what you truly deserve? How, much, how many desserts are we going to give out to, today if you want get what you truly deserve? Raise your hand if you deserve dessert, you know, today. So, I mean, it's just, it's a hard way of thinking that we are sinners and have no claim on God. We have none, okay? The amazing thing is not that anyone burns in hell forever and ever, but that anyone's up in heaven forever and ever. That's the amazing thing. It's incredible to me that God would save me. And the more I go on in my Christian life, the more incredible it is to me. The more I see who I really am compared to the standards there are in Scripture, the more thankful I am for salvation. We need to move on. The sufferings of Christ were also ordained by the will of God. We've already talked about Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, or not my will, but yours be done. So does that mean that the cross was the will of God for Jesus? Oh, yes, it was. It was the will of God that Jesus suffer and die on that cross. And it says it openly. Acts 2.23 says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men have put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's set purpose and foreknowledge handed Jesus over. It was greatest evil and God, God did it. It was his purpose. And then Acts 4.27, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is a prayer. They did what your power and will determined beforehand should happen. I don't, I don't know how much more plainly you can say it. God's sovereign will handed Jesus over. And then Isaiah 53.10, I guess could be more plain. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. God's will to crush his own son and make him suffer. Absolutely. It was God's will. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, listen to this, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And I love how it ends here. The will of God will prosper in his hand. I think of the will of God in Jesus' hand like a garden of Eden that just flourishes in the hands of Christ because he was willing to submit to the cross. Look at all the good things that have come. Look at all the heroes of the faith, men and women that have gone before us that are up in heaven now worshiping him and all of that flowing out of the death of Jesus, the good things that have come. But that's uh, the sufferings of Christ ordained. Regeneration. Our regeneration. Another word for regeneration is new birth, right? To be born again. What does James say? James 1.18 says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. That's what it says. So it ascribes our regeneration to His choice. Sanctification. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Our God is sovereignly working out your salvation every day, isn't He? And you say, but I sin. Listen, God can even work your evil ultimately for good. He is able to make all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Incredible thing. And you know what happens when you sin, don't you? The Holy Spirit starts to work on you, right? Right? And you start to feel it. It's called discipline. All right? He knows what he's doing. He knows. He knows how to get you to heaven. He's done it before, many times. He knows how to do it. Isn't that wonderful? And how about the suffering of believers? Could that ever be the will of God? Well, if you've been listening to my preaching in Matthew 10, you know that it is, in fact, the choice of Christ to divide people, the sword. 
I did not come to bring peace but the sword. You are considered sheep for the slaughter. Who's considering you that way? The father is. He considered his own son that way. He's not going to treat you better than his son. All right, and so what does he say? First Peter 3.17, It is better if it is God's will for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Could it ever be God's will for you to suffer? Well, the health and wealth people will tell you no. It's impossible for it to be God's will for you to suffer. Well, what about 1 Peter 3.17? And the same thing in chapter 4. There's another verse. Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, now see it here that I still have. So anyway, it's granted as a gift to you for you to suffer. Man's life and destiny is also under the will of God. How about this one? Acts 18.21, As Paul left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Do you talk like that? Do you speak that way? I will come back if it is God's will. Next week, we'll do such and such, God willing. Why do I say that? Is it just some little habit? Well, it is a habit, but it's a good habit. I have some bad habits, but that's a good one. Yeah, go ahead. We have no control. Where were we last Wednesday night? We weren't here. Well, actually, I was here. Well, I, I left relatively early. It took me three hours and 15 minutes to get home. I was in my car. <laughs> yeah, Christy said, well, I hope you were safe. I said, I couldn't have been safer. My peak speed was eight miles an hour. I think, you know, I had, I had the car in park for 20 minutes at a time. I wasn't moving much. But anyway, yes, uh, James 4.15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. Just get into saying that. Just think that way. You're appointed to die. You're under the death penalty. That's already settled. The scripture says so in many places. All right? Remember what David said as he was dying. He said, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That's, the way, that's it. We're going to die, okay? Then get in the habit of saying, if it is the Lord's will, I will live tomorrow and do this or that, okay? That I'll be alive at all is up to God. And then do this or that is if it is the Lord's will, okay? And then Proverbs 19.21, you know this one. Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You think you're figuring out your day. No, God's figuring your day out, Okay? You, you know, you think it's going to be a certain way, all right? But God's purpose prevails. How about calling to roles of service within the church, I mean? Well, the Apostle Paul, he was an apostle, right? Did he decide to be an apostle? Yes. But it's just his decision came after God's. God's came first. And he says that again and again and again, all right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, how? By the will of God. He says it again and again. Actually, what was Paul's will? Paul was demonstrating his will, right? It was to kill Christians. That was his will. God had a different will, to be a Christian. Do you think he, the morning of his conversion, Paul woke up and said, I think I'll be a Christian today. Not at all. He was on a, en route to killing Christians. Instead, he was a Christian by the end of the day. How can you explain that? The will of God. All right, and 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and 18 talks about spiritual gifts, your role in the body. All right? All these are the work of one and the same Spirit and He gives them to each one as He determines. You get your spiritual gift according to the will of the Spirit. You know, and Ephesians 4 describes it to Jesus, but that's fine. The Trinity gets along great. There's no jealousy. They all work along totally together. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Spirit determining spiritual gifts. And in, uh, in Ephesians 4, it's Jesus apportioning gifts of faith. So these things are worked out by the Trinity, by Father, Son, and Spirit. It says God, that's God the Father, has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If you're an eye, or if you're a nose, or a mouth, or a hand, whatever you are in the body of Christ, it's because God determined that that's what you should be. Isn't that wonderful? 
to realize that, that your role is... And therefore, we should accept our role. We should rejoice in it. We should be content with it. We should embrace it. And even the smallest matters of life, I just preached on this in Matthew 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet, not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. What is Jesus saying there? What is he saying? What is the import of that statement? Yeah. And it doesn't happen apart from the will of God. What does that mean? That's right. That's right. He is feeding species of fish that you didn't even know existed. He's feeding them right now. All right? And they will die when he takes away their, their life. All of them under the will of God. Sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from the will of God. And in Matthew 10, the context is of suffering messengers to the gospel. Well, how much less would a child of God, an ambassador to the king, be arrested and beaten by a human government and then killed and God didn't know about it or notice it or had no plan for it? That doesn't make any sense. If a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, how much less would your persecution or even your martyrdom happen as an accident and God be surprised? What are you doing here? I had plans for you next week. You were supposed to be over in Asia Minor. It wouldn't happen. It's impossible. The will of God is sovereign and supreme over these things. All right, now, they, uh, theologians make distinctions in the aspects of God's will. For example, it speaks of the necessary will of God and the free will of God. The necessary will of God has to do with himself. These are things he must will. He has no choice but to will them. It's very difficult to conceive of this. It's hard, and I won't spend much time because I don't understand it. But it has to do with his own existence and his own attributes. He constantly wills that he exist and that he be the kind of God that he is. Okay? And if he didn't, he wouldn't exist or be the kind of God that he is. So it's hard to, it's hard to accept, but that's his necessary will. It's the will he must have. He must have. The Father must be the Father to the Son. He must beget the Son all the time. He's eternally begotten of the Father. That's what the Creed says, right? So forever he's begetting the Son from eternity past, and he will always beget the Son. And the Spirit will always proceed from the Father and the Son. Always. That's just the way it is. And so he wills these things. God's will toward himself is called his necessary will. That toward the creature is called his free will. Now, what do we mean by his free will? Well, God's free will includes all things that God decided to will, but had no necessity to will according to his nature. He didn't have to do them. You see what I'm saying? Nothing was compelling him to do them. And it has to do with any will toward us. Do you see what I'm saying? Whether to create us, to redeem us, any of those things were not compelled. He just did them freely. Does that make sense? It was his free choice to do them. There was nothing forcing him. He, could, he would never say, I had no choice. I had to create. Or I had no choice. I had to redeem. He had the choice. Now, we speak frequently about our free will, don't we? Is this a new concept? God's free will? <laughs> It shouldn't be because that's all of our things come as an echo. Our, we're created in the image of God. And our will really isn't free but contingent, isn't it? We cannot have a truly free will if there is a God who has a free will in the universe. Does that make sense? His will must come first or it's, he's not king anymore. And so he rules. Yes? I have no choice. Well, I mean, he didn't say that. 
Yeah. It's hard in that Jesus was fully man. And in that sense, I think he was acting out as a servant. When Jesus was in, incar- in, in the incarnate body, when he was walking on earth, he was behaving as a human should. And a human should be governed by the dictates of the will of God. I think that's the sense there. So in that case, he's... Yeah. Right, right. That's that's very true. Their concern is they want a full stomach. Jesus' concern is doing the will of his Father. That's true. But whether Jesus was constrained by that will, I don't want to speak that way. In his deity, he is never constrained. But in his humanity, he was acting like a servant. The Son of Man was among us as one who served, right? And his primary service was given to his Father. Always, 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 always. Always. Don't think for a moment that Jesus did not that Jesus ceased to be deity even when he was dying on the cross. He was always God the Son, even on the cross, especially on that. Well, I can use the word especially. Never especially the Son of God. He's always the Son of God. Okay. Now, the theologians also break it into will of decree and will of precept. What do we mean by that? The will of decree has to do with those things that God determines or decrees that will happen. All right. What's a good example of that? Well, let there be light. And there was light. Did light decide, you know, I don't really want to be today. It's not a good day for being. Okay, I think I'm going to have... Can I be tomorrow? Would that be okay? If I wait a day? It's, it's ludicrous. When God decrees, it happens. All right? So that is the will of decree. Burkhoff puts it this way. The will of decree is that will of God by which he purposes or decrees whatever shall come to pass whether he wills to accomplish it effectively, causatively, like let there be light, or to permit it to occur through unrestrained agency of his rational creatures. That's human history unfolding, and God permits certain things to occur according to his will. You see? That's will of decree. Isaiah 14.26 says, This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. You almost see God raising his hand and say, This is the hand stretched out over all nations. What I decree takes place and nobody can push my hand back. That's the will of decree. What is the will of precept? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Is that God's will? But it's precept. It's what he's instructing you to do or to be. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Is God's will of precept able to be broken and disobeyed all the time, constantly. And so these are the two wills of God that we talk about, his will of decree and his will of precept. Okay? Something he commands, yes. Uh, Burkhoff puts it this way, the rule of life that God has laid down for his moral creatures, indicating the duties which he enjoins upon them. Another way to divide it is the so-called secret versus the revealed will of God. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So what what access do we have to the revealed will of God? How do you get at that? Scripture, Scripture, right? (laughs) Pretty much. Scripture alone. Although the unfolding of history also somewhat reveals his will. But I think especially in Scripture, we find his will revealed. And so we're supposed to find out what is pleasing to God. Now, there are some secrets that God holds to himself, aren't there? We don't know. Like, for example, instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Do you know whether God wills your existence tomorrow? Do you know? I don't. I don't. And so we only ever have something called today. 
That's why this concept of today is huge. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I told my kids, I was going through this, we're going through Hebrews chapter 3, and I said, do you realize how huge this is? If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Your life will be woven together with the fabric of a bunch of todays in which you hear his voice and obey him or don't. Okay? So I said, they're sitting on the couch with me, I said, Nathaniel, I want you to get up and I want you to obey God yesterday. Go ahead. Go obey him. Well, he didn't know where to go. I said, I don't know where to go either. I mean, if you can find yesterday, go obey him in it. Well, he sat back down. Jenny got to obey God tomorrow. She tried to be creative. She's very creative, you know, but she searched in vain for tomorrow, okay? She said, but it's going to come. I said, yes, but then it'll be called what? Today, okay? If today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, we don't even know if God decrees tomorrow. And in the morning, you ought to wake up and say, thank you, God, for decreeing that I live another day. So we don't really know. Or those times when God's wrath is hovering over a place like Nineveh. And the prophet Jonah has preached and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And the king commands that they all repent. And do you know what he says? Look in Jonah 3.9. What does he say? There at the bottom. Those first two words there. Jonah 3.9. Who knows? God may yet relent. Why does he say who knows? Because God isn't constrained in this matter. He doesn't have to relent. He might bring down wrath even though they've covered themselves in sackcloth. He might. Yeah. I mean, that was a blessing. Yeah. But what's interesting about that preaching, you have to know Hebrew a little bit. I don't, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but the preaching is enigmatic. It's a little bit of a riddle. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned, is what it literally says. Well, sometimes the overturning is repentance. Okay? So it really could go either way. You don't really know in the preaching. It's like you can't tell. And that's why the, uh, the king says, who knows? We don't know what God's going to do. He may destroy us. He may save us. And so he says, who knows? All right, the revealed will of God is the will of precept. Page 7, we're to find out what pleases the Lord. We're to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should say, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does this mean? It means every day you wake up and you say, I want to understand the revealed will of God. You cannot understand the secret will. He won't tell you. He won't. But you can know the revealed will, and that's the Scripture. You study the Scripture, Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to do what? Test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you, you wake up and you say, God's will is like railroad tracks and I want to run on it today. I want to just stay in God's will, the center of God's will today. All right? All right, fine. Uh, the test case here, Genesis 50:20. this is the uh, kidnapping of Joseph. The will of precept is that kidnapping is punishable by death. Now, it hadn't happened yet. Law of Moses didn't exist, but it's still a character of God. Okay? Exodus 21:16 says, Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. That is the character and nature of God. You can't grab somebody and sell them as a slave. That's wrong. And the brothers knew it was wrong. Even the law of Moses hadn't been written yet. They knew that what they did was wrong. That's why they concealed it from their father. It was an evil thing. That's God's will of precept. It was disobeyed in this matter, wasn't it? Okay. Human will in the matter. Joseph said, you intended it for evil. You intended to harm me. Okay, that's the will of, uh, the will of man. Man had a will in the matter and it was evil. Big surprise. All right. What was God's will in the matter? 
God intended it for good so that many lives might be spared. Yeah? Not directly. Not directly. And this, I'll tell you what. The king's heart is like a water course. He directs it. This is the way I look on God's dealing with evil. It says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desires dragged away and enticed. What does God do? Your evil is like a pent-up kind of well of water, like a tank of water. And he opens sluice gates and channels how your evil flows. And he's doing it for six billion people and channels it to accomplish all kinds of good work. That's just the way he does it. And it's an incredible thing. He's not actually getting involved making you do evil, but he's channeling your evil. They didn't kill Jesus by stoning him. All right? They killed him in a certain way. So he's channeling the evil and he accomplishes salvation. They wanted to kill Joseph, didn't they? They wanted to kill him right there and then. God channeled the evil. Say, well, we want to make him suffer. He'll suffer even more if he's a slave. There are these thoughts, right? But God was working it out and channeling their evil. And you know how water will go through a sluice and then turn a wheel and get work done. That's how God works with evil. But he's not actually doing the evil. But the evil is part of his will. Does that make sense? He's not responsible for it. He's going to judge the people for doing it. But it still accomplishes great things. He's just good at that. All right. Freedom, I told you, we don't have to talk much about. Basically, God is... God is not answerable to us. He does not need to give us an account. Read those verses and look at them. And then finally, um, it's the last one. Omnipotence, power, sovereignty. My goodness, we've been talking about that all along. I'm going to be preaching, God willing, <laughs> um, in January. In Matthew 11, and I'll close with this. Matthew 11 has, has been a real challenge to me. All right, and I want to challenge you with it. Think about it this way. Jesus denounced the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. He said, Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Stop just a moment. How did he know that? He knows potentialities. He knows what would have happened if he had gone up to Tyre and Sidon and done the same miracles. What would have happened if he had done that? They would have repented. Now, here's my question. Why didn't he go and do it then? Tough question. Tough question. But it's right there, brothers and sisters. He, it was not his will to go to Tyre and Sidon and do those miracles there. And they will perish as a result. Now, I'm, I know that's a bombshell, but you go read it. Read Matthew 11, and you will find out if you read the whole chapter. It's one of the most complex things I've ever seen because at the end, he gives a gospel invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find, it's probably one of the greatest invitations Jesus ever gave. And that's right after he said that the Father had hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children, for this was his good pleasure. All these things done by the will of God. This is the God that we serve. And if you're a Christian today, you can ascribe it directly to that final cause. And what is it? It's the will of God. Amen. It's the will of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study tonight. My goodness, the things we've been able to go through. I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. And Father, I pray that as some of us go out now to reach out to folks, to witness to them, to, to uh, try to bring them into the kingdom of God, or, or if they're already brothers and sisters, to exhort them in their walk. Father, I pray that you would bless us and strengthen us. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.